You're listening to Behind the Headlines, a weekly news talk show hosted by the Express News Group, publishers of the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com and uh, SagHarborExpress.com and featuring distinguished journalists from the East End to discuss what's news on the North and South Forks of Long Island. The program airs every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. and repeats Sunday at 1 p.m. on WLIW-FM 88.3 and 96.9. I'm Bill Sutton, Managing Editor of the Express News Group. I'm joined this week by Beth Young, Editor and Publisher of the East End Beacon. Good morning, Beth. Hi, Bill. Alec Lewis, a reporter with Riverhead Local. Good morning, Alec. Good morning. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Um, It's Alec's first time on the show. And we're also joined by Chrissy Sampson, Deputy Managing Editor at the East Hampton Star. Good morning, Chrissy. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Let's start with with the Supreme Court um, decision that was um, the the draft decision that was leaked last week on um, that that seeks to overturn Roe versus Wade, which makes abortions um, legal to to women in, in the country. I know Alec, you covered um, you covered a protest last week in in Riverhead. You want to talk a little bit about the protest, and then we'll we'll get into a discussion about the um, the decision. Yeah, so a lot of people came out to the, um, you know, the state court courthouse in Riverhead, uh, around 60 people to rally um, in support of uh, abortion rights um, either uh, after the news broke on Monday that um, obviously the Supreme Court intended to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, and so there were a, there's a lot of people uh, in support of it of of Roe that came out um, they held signs out and uh, they passed um, passed a microphone around to the a megaphone around to the to everybody and everybody shared stories about the importance of you know having the right to the to an abortion secured. Um, so it, it was really a, a kind of a moving uh, event. A lot of people told per- personal stories, um, and uh, and also who was there was uh, Bridget Fleming and um, and uh, Jackie Gordon, who are two um, uh, candidates for the uh, for Congress in uh, New York one, the first congressional district against. Uh, uh, well, trying to replace Lee Zeldin, who's running for governor, and he's actually against um, abortion rights. Right. So, so some of the um, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of personal stories in, in the last week. What were some of the stories that people were 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 talking about at, at the protest? I imagine their own, you know, their own experiences. Yeah. So a lot of them actually are, you know, it grew very emotional. Um, talking about how important it was that they would have access um, to healthcare, uh, to you know, to what they saw as a really important uh, part of healthcare. Um, I actually uh, interviewed um, a woman and her daughter uh, Lisa Fine and her daughter Sunny, and they talked about how important it was that um, that that she have that choice. Um, right. to, to have an abortion uh, if if need be and um, and her daughter young daughter was there as well um, and and she was talking to her uh, and uh, teaching her about the importance of, of abortion rights sure Beth what what's what's the what's the the, the impact here I mean I, I know mm-hmm. that I mean, a lot of people that I'm talking to are just horrified that that the country is is moving in in this direction, and you've got this conservative court now. It was, I, I think, a lot of people were surprised. I, I, I think nobody, no nobody nobody thought that, that this was that, that they were ever going to overturn Roe. But this was, I think, this was the goal of of appointing yeah. these conservative justices, right? I mean, this is a big, a big issue for for the Republican Party. Yeah, it's been a concerted effort for quite some time. And um, I mean, the right wing strategy has uh, has um, centered around the judiciary since, uh, I don't know, since Bush versus Gore, I would imagine. Um, And uh, especially especially in in the term of our last president, who made a lot of appointments to the federal bench. Right. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I mean, this is it's it's a very motivating issue on both sides of the aisle. Right. Um, so, um, I mean, even though, you know, the majority of um, Americans are in favor of abortion rights, uh, what, are they, what they motivates have, they have, and, and what it motivates them to do is still remains to be seen at this point. Right. I mean, they estimate but, that like 60 percent of the public is 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 in favor of choice. Right. Yeah, at least. Yeah, I think that's the number I heard. Yeah. Um, I mean, whether or not you support that, you know, decision for your own self, like if you're opposed to it, just don't have one. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's the choice that matters. It's such a personal decision. And to see so many, you know, every woman I'm seeing talk on television is telling a personal story. And right. this is this is going to continue. And it's it's painful to watch, but it's uh, it, it's a very effective tool and you know i mean everybody has a sister everybody has a mother or daughter uh, james carville was on tv last night saying you know you know as a man you might not think this affects me personally but there are a lot of women in my house who are really upset right now sure um, and, and then, you know it's yeah. not it's not a total final decision yet is my understanding right, right. like but it's right. pretty darn close to it Right. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't think there's there's um, much debate as to whether whether something's going to be, you know, the, the decision's going to come down. And, and it seems like there's certainly enough support on the court. I think they might yeah. tweak the, you know, the draft decision, but um, it, it looks to me like it's pretty much a done deal. I don't I don't think that even though there's going to be, you know, a, a lot of people protesting this between now and in June, I, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's going to happen. Yeah. A lot of people during the protests talked about how this decision um, is not just going to have an impact on abortion rights, but is also going to lead possibly into, um, you know, judicial action um, for other other types of cases um, affecting the LGBTQ community, sure, like gay, um, gay, gay marriage. marriage yeah. yeah. And and other rights um, that, you know, are are secured by by court decisions. Um, and that was really impactful um, during the conversation. Actually, one of the speakers uh, talked about how he favored to uh, pack the Supreme Court, which is another political issue entirely. Um, that's adding more justices to the bench um, and also um, uh, eliminating the filibuster. Um, so that Congress could codify abortion rights, um, you know, federally uh, for everybody so that the states can't restrict um, abortion. Right. I, and I, I think, I mean, packing the Supreme Court would would be a, a constitutional issue that, that that I think would take a lot of time. And, you know, it's an interesting idea. Um, I, I mean, you would have to, you know, amend the Constitution to to do that. And and again, then, you know, and, and the other point I, I think about, um, you know, uh, the filibuster, I'm, I'm in favor of getting rid of the filibuster. I think it, it, it personally makes no sense at all to, um, you know, to to stop. It just leads to inaction on, on Congress's part. But. Um, I think once the court makes the decision, I don't know how how the legis you know legislative body, the federal leg legislative bodies would be able to um, you know to make laws you know against that decision. It would just be a you know huge a huge back and forth. But obviously, everybody's looking for um, you know for for ways around this. It's just really crazy. Um, you know, and I also wonder what you know. It's just going to it just further divides the country. If, if this court decision comes through and says, so it's a state issue and you've got then these blue states and red states where, you know, in, in the blue states, you know, abortions are legal or red states, they're, they're not. Um, then it just further, further sets up that state versus state thing. And I mean, it, it harkens back to civil war era stuff, right? I mean, you're just gonna, you've just got this huge division already and it's just going to continue this way. I think it's, really scary. It also sets a precedent for the, you know, the, the eroding of church versus state. You know what I mean? Like the separation right. of church and state. Right. I, I think, you know, I mean, the conservative party used to be, you know, about 
you know, states' rights versus, you know, versus federal control. And and now it, it just seems more, you know, it's more, uh, you know, a religious fundamental, um, you know, thing. And, and that's where it's where it's coming down. And that's just it's just really scary. It, it should be separate. And, and the judicial reasoning, uh, as far as I've read from um, Associate Justice Samuel Leto, is that um, because the um, um, abortion wasn't historically something that was guaranteed by the Constitution, um, it should be sent back to the states and, and, and stay an issue of policy um, and an issue of the legislature. Yeah. Yeah, but you've got 50 years of precedent where where it's it's, you know, it's the federal federal law, I guess. Um, I mean, that that abortions are legal and I don't know how you get you get past that, too. It's how you I guess it's how you look at the Constitution, whether I mean, there's 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 terms for it, whether, you know, um, I, I think we we've grown a lot in the last several hundred years since the constitution was, was written. And you can't, in my opinion, you can't have that, you know, that only what's written, you know, in, in, in the constitution, I think it's gotta be open to, to our interpretation. Right, Beth? Yeah. I mean, um, they didn't imagine any of the guns we have now when, uh, when the, uh, First Second Amendment came out, you know. The news business doesn't change that much. <laughs> we're just looking at we're, we're reading it somewhere else. Yeah. Um, but um one of yeah. the things that's related, I think, is that you know, there are states that don't have mandatory sex education laws for public schools. And you know, those states you know, there may be like a, a statistically higher percentage of teen pregnancies, you know, so it, it's tied into education as well, because, you know, how do you, there, there's, there's a lot of ways to like, you know, counteract that, you know, that need um, for sex education in, in some of those red states, you know what I mean? Like right. just, it's it's a really complex issue. And and one of the people that um, was speaking during the protest on Tuesday um, made the point that, um, well, obviously, the conservatives and, and a lot of Republicans are the ones against abortion, um, that she asked the question, do they vote for child care? Do they support, I, me- you know, uh, you know, medical care for the family? You know, which is something if you, you know, if if you have a child would be very important, um, an important thing to have. So as well as healthcare coverage, you know, insurance companies paying for, you know, births in hospitals and, you know, all the like and yeah. paid family leave. And it's so complex. Well, and, and, and 18 years of support for a child born to to an underage mother who, who then may not have an opportunity to, um, you know, to to get a, a, a good education because they're they're caring for their child. And, you know, and, um, you know, it just it just sets up a. Um, you know, it, it just sets up a, you know, it just sets up a bad, a bad precedent. You've got all these, these women forced to have these children and, and some of them aren't, aren't don't have the facilities to take care of, of, of the kids. It's just really, really crazy. Child care is an enormous, enormous issue. Yeah, exactly. Two, two other women I spoke to, and, and you reminded me of this, um, said that, um, you know, they remember in a pre-row world where they were in high school and somebody would suddenly have to drop out of school. And then several months later, she would come back and her family would have a new baby brother. Right. And, you know, and they were saying, we can't go back there. We can't right. allow, you know, their children, their grandchildren, the next generations uh, to go back to that point where they have to be forced into into having a child they may not want right or or you know i mean you know before before abortion was legal i mean the the number of of botched abortions by you know by fly by night um you know quote unquote medical you know people performing these abortions um you know killing killing 
you know, hurting, hurting, hurting pregnant women and, you know, you know, killing, killing women and, and all that abortions aren't going to stop just because they're, they're, they're illegal. And I, I think going back to those days of the, you know, the cloak and dagger, you know, in, in the middle of the night, darkened, you know, um, you know, abortions is, is just crazy. It will drive it underground, which is right. a risk, greater well, health risk. And, and creates, and we were, we were talking about it yesterday. It also creates, I, I think, you know, uh, quote unquote, abortion tourism, where, you know, people in red states will, you know, are, are going to, you know, flock to the blue states to, to have abortions. But, you know, that's going to be limited to, to people that have the, the financial ability to, to do that. I think you're going to have, you know, poor women and, and pe- women in, um, you know, underrepresented communities. That, that aren't going to have that option. And then they're forced to have, you know, to have these babies or, or to seek these, you know, seek underground abortions. It's just really scary. It's like, it feels like we're going back to the dark ages here. Just, I feel like that's been in a slow, slow process since late in 2016, but that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, there's definitely a certain amount of complacency to for, among people who've never witnessed what this is like in their lifetime. You know? Right. It's been a very long time. But there's still going to be that, that side. There's still going to be that side on the right that, you know, that that it's, you know, that it's protecting these these unborn children and damn the consequences and, you know, and all that. It's kind of scary. What do you, what do you think the effect will be in um, in, in New York, I mean, New York passed legislation as last year, or the year before kind of protecting the abortion rights. Do you think we'll have an influx of, of people coming in for, for abortions? Do you think there will be an effort to, you know, to make abortions illegal in New York to, to overturn that? I, I, I see that as, as not a, a great possibility given, you know, given the, you know, the left leaning politics of the state, but, but who knows what if we, Governor Hochul, Governor Hochul addressed that earlier this week. You know, um, her message to all women was the state of New York will always be there. This is a quote from her press release. will always be there for anyone who needs reproductive health care, including an abortion. Her message is those who deny this fundamental basic right. You don't want to mess with the state of New York. That's what she said. Well, good for her for standing up. Um, And and we kind of hope that she's going to be around for a while. Um, with the upcoming election. Um, somebody had, I uh, was having a conversation with somebody yesterday and and they mentioned, you know, organizations like Planned Parenthood. And do, do we think that, that those organizations will be raising money to help women come in from red states to, um, to get abortions in, in New York state? And will there be an effect out here? I know there's a, a Planned Parenthood in, in Riverhead, um, uh, I, I, I think we'll see some kind of movements, right? On the they don't run. do abortions in Riverhead, but they have right. enough. Um, I, absolutely. I mean, there are plenty of people out there who uh, who want to donate in some useful way. I'm sure. I'm sure Planned Parenthood received a lot of donations this week. Right. How about we'll continue to. Okay. Um, you're listening. We're, you're listening to Behind the Headlines on WLIW 88.3 and 96.9. I'm Bill Sutton, managing editor of the Express News Group, joined by Alec Lewis of Riverhead Local, Chrissy Sampson from the East Hampton Star, and Beth Young uh, from the East End Beacon. Let's um, let's move on to our next topic. Um, Beth, you want to talk a little bit about prescribed burns? I know that uh, we can keep it short, but I know that they, they're they about to start them again, or they have started them again on the East End in the last week or so. They've started in, in um, Rocky Point, and um, they're slated. I don't know if they began this week in the Sarnoff Woods in Riverside. Uh, it was a little bit weather dependent. Right. Um, but they will be doing it in the upcoming weeks. Um, this is the first large-scale uh, woodland uh, burns. The, the DEC has been um, burning grasslands for habitat um, purposes um, on the East End for, for many, many years. But uh, woodlands have always been a little bit more controversial because um, the conditions have to be very particular. And right. um, 
and uh so ex- the, explain why they do these these burns and and what they are and uh, yeah. why they're important so uh the pine barrens is a fire dependent ecosystem and um and we've been building a lot of houses in the fire in the pine barrens and you know since the since the 1995 wildfires we've really worked really hard at keeping fires in the pine barrens from from going out of control um because that was um a massive and expensive and um disastrous um event that happened in in the 90s but the, the problem was but at the same time was good for the pine barrens right? <laughs> it was good for the pine barrens. So during during the fire, what the the seeds, the pine cones fall, and and it you know it removes the the underbrush, and you know and allows for for new new growth. Right? Is that do I have that right? Yeah, and if, I mean the big thing with that fire was it, it, it jumped across Sunrise Highway, and for a long time there was like a scar of blackened trees on either side of Sunrise Highway. Right. That you can't even tell where it went through now. Those trees are all incredibly, you know, they're healthy, they're they're growing. Um, but um, what's happening now is there's a lot of fuel because of the lack of fire. So there's a lot of like down trees, there's a lot of underbrush, there's a lot of trees that were damaged by the southern pine beetle. Mm. Um and all this dead dead wood in the uh, in the pine barrens is um creating the potential for another disastrous wildfire. So in order to keep that from happening, they need to burn off some of the fuels and they do it under very controlled conditions. Um, And uh, what they're trying to focus on is protecting neighborhoods. So the, the area uh, in Rocky point is um, very close to a housing development. The area in the Sarnoff preserves is just south of the McLeod um, senior mobile home community. Right. I don't know what it's still called McLeod. It's on Route 105. Yeah, there's, a, there's a different name for it, I think, but everybody still refers to it that way, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so this is uh, getting underway. Um, they have a, a, a man named uh, Bob Panko has been working on this plan for the um, Central Pine Barrens Commission for uh three years or so he's the the burn boss on this and he's um i want to be that i want to be a burn boss yeah he he does wear a button on his hat that says um we're professionals do not try this at home right which um is really good advice (laughs) (laughs) um it can you know fire is unpredictable yeah um uh but uh so i was out there in uh in uh in rocky point when they were burning a week and a half ago and yeah. um they've got people from the dc they've got people from local fire departments brookhaven national lab has been involved because the the last fire about 10 years ago yeah um in uh ignited right off the brookhaven national lab grounds wow um that's that's a little scary given some of the equipment <laughs> that they have there i have a question yeah. Um, Beth, do you know anything like does this happen? Is there effect on this, the spread of the southern pine beetle? Does the, do the fires help contain that at all? Because my understanding is that that beetle is still on the move. Yes, it does help contain it. Um, uh, the DC foresters have been felling a lot of tr- trees, and when they fell the trees, the um, they d- disrupt the like pheromone trails. So the, I don't know, it's a little too technical. Um, so that the uh, beetles they don't. What's, they a, don't what's find, a pheromone trail, Beth? They, they follow their nose to another um, another tree, right? Another tree. Um, so, um, but the fire definitely helps contain it too. But that's one of the things they were trying to figure out was how 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 effective fire was. Um, so they did a little test spot where they felled some trees and felled some trees and burned and left it alone. So they had like a controlled experiment and um, the fire definitely helped with that effort. Um, I'll be interested to see what data comes out of that. You know, like, can it be applied to other areas to specifically control that, that beetle? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, yeah. It's really neat. There's a lot, lot of science involved in this, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not just you know go in and burn some trees. It's, it's figuring out, you know, yeah. the best areas to burn, how much to burn, and you know, and all that. But and the southern like, pine, pine beetles. I mean, they've just left so many dead trees everywhere. That's, that's got to be a real risk. Yeah, is, is that what's going up on, on up in the northwest woods? Um, that was, yeah, there was a lot of that up there. Yeah. Um, and you know, my understanding is that it's also starting to affect Nakheeg. Wow. Is that, is that, I think I saw something on 27 East about that a while back, Michael Wright reporting on that, I think. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. They've got, they've got some pines there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, they thought they, in, in Nakheeg, and I think they thought they had contained the, the beetles for a while and they just came in, uh, came back strong. It's also on the agenda at tomorrow's meeting of the Wayne Scott Civic uh, Citizens Advisory Committee. They're going to talk about the southern pine beetle and uh-huh. whether there's a presence in Wayne Scott and what they can do about it. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that there's anything they can do yeah. as far as like the, the citizens are concerned, the everyday people in a hamlet or village. But, you know, that's on the topic that's on their agenda tomorrow to address that. Unfortunately, it usually involves cutting down a bunch of trees. Yeah, but but Uh, then you know, but then the the problem with that is you cut the the trees down, and and luckily, I think when you cut an infected tree down, then the beetles on that tree die. They don't they don't move to another tree. But then you've got all these you know these dead trees around, and and the cost, the expense of trying to to remove those dead trees is is just prohibitive. Um, you know, both for the state and for for local homeowners who have, you know, I mean, I mean, imagine if if you have to cut down four trees in your yard, what the cost would be to to remove those. It can be prohibitive and, you know, and it's just left there. And that's kind of the after effects of, um, you know, of trying to get a handle on on the beetles. It's interesting. Now, my understanding was also that the town, like, for instance, East Hampton Town came in and in Northwest and felled a whole bunch of trees, but then left it to the property owners, Bill, as you were just saying, right. to do the removal of those felled trees. And that's why you see a lot of them still around there off of 114. You're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to remove trees on, on your property. It's just like mm-hmm. you know, having them cut down. It's, it's, a, it's a major expense. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I wonder if they'll talk about that at the, if that's the discussion at the CAC. Yeah, uh, Probably. Yeah. <laughs> it's behind the headlines on uh, WLIW 88.3 and Bill Sutton, managing editor of the Express News Group, and joined by Alec Lewis from Riverhead Local, Chrissy Sampson from the East Hampton Star, and Beth Young from East End Beacon. Um, Alec, you wanted to talk a little bit about a couple issues in downtown Riverhead. Residents, uh, residents there formed a new civic association. Yeah, so um, a few residents formed a new civic association. Um, basically, in the greater downtown area, it's um, kind of stretches from Route 58 north down to the Peconic River, and then from like Mill Road on the west to Route 105. And, um, you know, the, one of the leaders of the civic association, or one of the founders, should I say, uh, Stephen Kramer, said it's been a long time coming. Um, and that, you know, he looked around at other civic associations like the Greater Calverton, uh, James Port Civic Associations. And he's like, why, why haven't, why don't downtown residents have a uh, civic? And it's because, I mean, there's a lot of activity, a lot of development in downtown Riverhead. There's so um, much going on right now. Oh right? my God. There's, yeah, it's, it's incredible how much is going on. And they say, you know, they want to, make sure that residents downtown can better advocate for for their interests um you know they said they're not you know anti-development or not against development um although they said a few things that uh that they might be opposed to uh stephen kramer said he um he did some polling um about a firearms training facility that's actually proposed on the corner of Elton and East Main Street, he said it's you know it's not popular, so they might. But as a as a resident of Elton Street, I, I really would would like to uh, help them oppose that firearms facility. <laughs> Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, yeah. Uh, so they're having their uh, first official civic meeting. They've had a few preliminary meetings. They have a Facebook page. It's called the Heart of Riverhead um, Civic Association, and. Um, 
So they'll have their first official meeting May 14th um, at 11 o'clock at the Riverhead Free Library. Um, and it'll be mostly for like introductions and identify issues that the Civic wants to tackle and comment on. And they said they're going to try to do some organizing downtown for, uh-huh. for certain events and activities. What I wonder is the relationship, you know, was one of the motivating factors the, um, you know, in January when downtown Riverhead, well, Riverhead received that $10 million state grant for economic revitalization. Is, was that one of the motivating factors for them to come together like this? So actually this, um, Kramer told me that this uh, civic association has actually been in the works um, for a while, but it really came to head in November with the fire on uh, the historic home on Second Street in downtown Riverhead. Um, They cited that as an issue where they were like, well, uh, us residents here, we have to advocate um, and and band together. And so that tragedy kind of brought um, the founders together. And um, there's a decent amount of people, around like 60 people, I think, um, joined their Facebook page. And they have, uh, Kramer said they have about 20 residents that are, that um, are, are gearing up to to get memberships so far. Well, yeah, I mean, that 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 grant is going to make things change very quickly. Sure. So they, yeah. Yeah. They need Definitely. to spend that money fast. <laughs> yeah. I and, think, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, um, I think that personally, from experiencing Riverhead, I think they need to add a little more parking. Is my experience. I don't know if that's your experience as well. <laughs> you got to find a place for it. <laughs> so, so I the plan is um, well for the current uh, downtown revitalization initiative. Um, they've they have a master developer for the town square project, which is right. where the town wants to put um, some of the money from the downtown uh, you know revitalization initiative funds, and that plan. Uh, I don't know if you guys know, it's a um, it basically a mix two mixed use buildings on either side of um, of the town square. One is going to house a firehouse museum and then retail space. And then the other one's actually going to be re- ground floor retail space with a restaurant on the ground floor. And then above that is going to be a, a hotel, a boutique hotel. Mm. Um, and with like a rooftop bar and, and stuff like that. And then, but the plan also calls for that developer to go down into the municipal parking lot downtown and actually takes, um, the plan requires uh, requires them to take some land, but I I don't know if it'll be that case, but to build on um, what now is one of the biggest parking lots on the riverfront, a, um, I think it's a four story condo building. Right. So that parking is going to be um, basically eliminated. So what the town is trying to do, well, what this developer is saying that the town probably needs to do is create a parking garage hmm. um, on the first street parking lot, which is right behind like the Suffolk Theater on the north side of Main Street. Um and that they'll need to supplement the parking uh, there. Um, and so actually this week, there was a public hearing on um, a few changes to the town code uh, regarding chapter 301, which governs governed zoning. And one of them was um, uh, on a code um, amendment that um, basically creates a separate like parking schedule for the amount uh, for the calculation of the number of, of off-street parking spaces for apartments downtown, and then also um, yeah, a lot creating- of these a lot of these developments. I think even you know the the proposed developments on on Court Street and all that they've been kind of waving. Uh, parking on on some of those developments, right? Because it's it's you know it, it's a an economic incentive so- to build those. Not Court Street, um, right. although Court Street, uh, that that building on Osborne and Court Street, which is 205 Osborne, yeah. is um, is actually peti- has petitioned to become part of the parking district because there right. are four spots under the parking that they that mm. they needed to create. So but they have ground floor parking, most of it um, for residents. Uh, they just need four for for retail. Um, but uh there's, you know, this new code that's been proposed. Um, basically, um, the town board can um, 
decide yeah, a few things, whether a town and planning board can decide if they want to eliminate some of the parking requirements downtown um, for some of the, you know, and, and reduce the number that a developer needs to provide. Right. And it, there's also another part of that code that would create a payment and loan parking program. Hmm. Basically the developer would pay a $12,500 per parking space. And that would go into a fund to create more parking downtown, but then they wouldn't need to provide as much parking for um, their development. Now we we've seen that in some of the villages on on the on the South Fork and like Sag some, Harbor, and that uh, it doesn't always work out, right? I mean, they, they pay <laughs> they pay into this fund, and then they're you know, and then and then maybe the villages don't you know provide more more parking, and you know, and it, it's just a it's it's kind of secular that you know they're paying into the fund not to provide the parking, but there's no parking being developed anywhere else, and that can be an issue. I, I kind of like the idea of a parking garage, you know, off off Main Street. I, I think there may be some um, objection to that because they, you know, they're, they're not super pretty, but that's a good spot for it because you've got, you know, you've got the, you know, the the new development, you know, going in across the street. You, you, you know, you've got parking for, you know, for the, the aquarium and, and all that. Um, no, I think that's not a bad idea. Alec, what do you think? I think it's going to be necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, if, especially if they're going to do this project and they've, um, named Jay Petroselli development associates as the master developer right. for the town square. And that's part of the plan is to build on top of that, um, that riverfront parking lot. So mm-hmm. I think they're going to need to, I think if they're getting, they're going to get the amount of, um, influx of tourists and influx of residents that they think they're going to get, they're going to need to build this, this parking lot, um, for the town. And I, I, I don't know. I, I think I see it as, you know, a, a positive, uh, sort of thing. If people are coming into the town, I, I think that's pretty good. And why businesses get boosted and, I, and I don't want, you, can, I don't, you can make a parking garage look a little prettier than a parking lot. um, I mean, there's one proposed as part of the the railroad avenue redevelopment in Riverhead. Yeah. And that one is going to be fronted with stores and street trees and whatnot. It looks pretty in the pictures. I've also seen in in the pictures. (laughs) (laughs) I've also seen in other parts of the country, like I was in Seattle for a while and there was a parking garage where there was like a big mural painted on the side. Oh, right. Hmm. So there's, you know. And that, you know, could be like a community effort and, you know, lots of cool things that can be done like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Interesting stuff. Uh, Along those lines, Alec, you also wanted to talk about the um, the downtown downtown pattern books. Can you explain what what that is a little bit and, and what what the recent development is with that? Yeah, so the downtown pattern book was something the town commissioned, um, I think it was 2019 um, over the uh, by the former administration, but um, it, you know, it basically, it was a public process to create this book that would guide um, future development downtown and would basically, um, you know, have recommendations and guidelines for size, scale, and character of that future development. And I guess the biggest part of um, the pattern book, I think in, in my eyes is that um new buildings that come in would be limited to four stories or 50 feet tall um, Mm. from what now is five stories or 60 feet tall. It would reduce the floor area ratio, um, which determines the developable area of the property. And it would require certain architectural design elements that are um, actually outlined in the code. Um, There were some people, um, one architect who was saying that, uh, these guidelines should just be guidelines and they shouldn't be required. Um, and then another gentleman who actually was the chair, uh, the co-chair of the downtown revitalization committee, um, he said that, well, these things should be more defined and they should be by the book 
no interpretation from um, developers or anything like that. So the pattern book process, it's a culmination of a hundred, you know, more than a hundred community members came together and they gave their recommendations and it was adopted by the board last year, actually in January, but it hasn't been codified until now. Mm. Um, Yeah. So another part of that also is, um, is net zero energy requirements um, for future developments. And that same architect that I was referring to also opposed to that. He should. He said that these things should be incentivized. They shouldn't be required, um, you know, in, in future developments. So, um, but generally positive reception from the residents that came out to the public hearing um, for, so he, for the pattern book. So, so he thinks, you know, green energy initiatives should, should be incentivized rather than required. Is that what he, what he said? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, and it's, so there's also, a green I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we're all in this together. Let's save the world. Right. I mean, it, he's, you know, these developers make a lot of money with, with these developments, they should conform to, um, you know, certainly climate change efforts, I would think. Yeah. And I mean, the text of the amendment is a little ambiguous. It says that the standards are strongly encouraged, uh, and, but it says strongly encouraged and are required to be incorporated into the project, which is like, well, is it strongly encouraged or is it required? required. <laughs> and then it also, you know, is, is this is including the use of solar panels and rooftops, geothermal heating systems. And but then it says in order to achieve zero net energy to the maximum extent practical, which also is a kind of like something you can interpret. Yeah, a little wishy-washy. <laughs> yeah, it's a little wishy-washy, the actual text of the code, but um well maybe the code uh, needs maybe the code needs a little tweaking. Yeah, I think that's what uh, a few of the residents also during the public hearing were saying is that there should, you know, these should be definite requirements, the architectural requirements, is your energy requirements, they should be uh you know, totally defined and required in the code. Um, and uh, one of the um, residents from South Jamesport, who's also a board member at the North Fork Environmental Council, uh, she said that the uh, net zero energy requirements should definitely not be taken out of the code. Mm. Um, they said, you know, they've been working on it for a long time. And she said, I'm sure you negotiated more aggressive things Um for you know against green energy and and that sort of thing environmental regulations out until you've gotten to this point so she'd hate to see the town walk it back now and uh i think the the town board i mean they already adopted the pattern book back in january 2021 so i think they'll probably adopt these amendments now interesting it's really fascinating to to see all the you know the growth and development in, in downtown Riverhead, and it's just I, I was driving through downtown with with somebody last night, and and just um, she was just so impressed with 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 the way you know downtown is looking and and growing and you know and all that, and it's just and as a Riverhead resident, I'm I'm happy with all that. I'm kind of proud of my 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 new hometown. So yeah, me too, Bill. <laughs> what I wanted to say, um, Alec, I really appreciate the, uh, and, you know, I know Beth, you've done this too. Um, everybody on the East end, as far as the journalists are concerned is it's our responsibility to follow that, not only follow that, but also interpret it and explain it in plain English because these zoning codes and everything like that are really technical. And, right. you know, somebody might say, well, what does that mean for me? And, you know, I really appreciate the detail that Alec just, you know, shared with us about like, you know, what it, what it'll mean. Sure. He's certainly knowledgeable about his beat. (laughs) (laughs) I try. (laughs) You're you're listening to behind the headlines on WLIW FM 88.3969. I'm Bill Sutton from the express news group joined this week by Alec Lewis from Riverhead local Chrissy Sampson from the East Hampton star and Beth Young from the East End Beacon. Chrissy, you wanted to talk about um, Spanish language lessons for kids in, in East Hampton. What's what's going on there? Yeah. So, you know, uh, my colleague Judy DeMello this week reported that more than half the world's population is now bilingual. And, you know, bilingualism 
it encourages flexibility of minds, empathy within a multicultural community, communication. Um, and so in response to that, Project Most, which is a very um, active nonprofit organization out here, um, they do after-school programs, weekend programs. One of their, uh, and for kids, it's not just East Hampton kids, but, you know, a lot of kids from, you know, Amagansett, Montauk and places West can take advantage of it, too. Um, they're offering weekend Spanish classes for kids in kindergarten through the fourth grade. Hmm. And, you know, to a degree that's done a lot in our local schools, um, but it's not the same. Like there isn't like one standard across the schools for, you know, how many times a week an elementary student might get a Spanish, you know, a Spanish teacher coming into the classroom and doing some lessons or, you know, in different districts approach it differently with more resources or, you know, sadly, some of them have fewer resources, but Project Most is trying to fill that gap um, with, you know, it's, it's like 20 bucks a class. It's an hour, um, actually 40 minute class on Saturdays. And, it, it'll run through the summer. Um, and the, the goal is really to even out that, um, that gap and encourage kids to, you know, explore another language. And the John Marshall elementary school in East Hampton has been doing that for the last few years, they have a dual language program hmm. and the data out of that program is phenomenal. Like the kids are having a great time um, they learn half the day in English and half the day in Spanish. And it's a model that is being duplicated. You know, there's a couple other schools seeking to duplicate that out here. Um, and That's awesome. You're really forcing the kids to to utilize the, the skills that they're learning in the new language. Right. And especially given the fact that there's so like the, the, the Latinx community out here is so large and so diverse. And there's often, you know, look at look at the success of Tu Prensa Local, um, you know, the Spanish language media outlet out here. I really admire them and, you know, they do a great job, but it speaks to the need for, you know, more Spanish language resources and a greater understanding of different communities. You know what I mean? Like, I just want to applaud Project Most for that um, sort of effort that they're doing now for um you know, to, to boost that sense of that, that bilingual skill across the youngest, some of the youngest kids on the East End. Well, it's so important. I think the earlier you you learn a, a new language, the, the the easier it is and the better it is. But I mean, it's just so important, not only on the East End, but but everywhere now that that people just, you know, to, to I, I wish I, I wish I spoke Spanish and. Um, you know, I wish I could go to those classes. I could give them, you know, 20 bucks. <laughs> you know, Duolingo is a fabulous app. I've been on it since the beginning of the pandemic. I made it my goal to like do an interview in Spanish. I'm not quite there yet, but I can, I can introduce myself and say, I work for the East Hampton star. That's about right. it right now. <laughs> four, four, four years of French lessons and, 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 uh, you know, high school and middle school. And I, I, and I'll never use any of that. Not that I remember any of it, but I, I I think it's just so important to focus on on everybody learning Spanish right now. And it's just so much the the, the population is is just so much part of our, our community. It's just, um, you know, and, and the, the barriers that, that exist between the two communities, the English speaking community, English only speaking community and, and the Spanish speaking community. Um, it just would make life so much easier for everybody if we could all communicate and get along. Right. Absolutely. And one of the things that the schools here have done is um, like, for example, East Hampton School District has a, a parent liaison. They have a social worker whose job it is to bridge that gap and encourage, you know, the Spanish speaking families to become part of the school community more then, and, you know, they're helping resources. Like you can get a school board meetings in Spanish translation, mm. um, you know, there are all sorts of things that they're putting in place to kind of like bring communities together. How, how much, how would anybody know the, the, the numbers? What, what's the, the population of the Spanish speaking community out here now as a percentage of, of the whole population? I, I know it was around, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say a wrong number. I mean, it's just been growing, growing for a long time. Right. 
going for a long time. And I can only really speak to some of the numbers in local school districts because that's, right. you know, my area of expertise. But, you know, in in the spring school, you know, more than 50 percent of the students, more than 50 percent of the children um, are, you know, they they are from a, a, a hit, like a Latinx family. Um, and a lot of them only speak Spanish at home. You find right. kids translating things for their parents. Right. Absolutely. Well, and it seems like the kids have have um, the easier time. Not that it's easy, but an easier time picking up the language because they're younger and earlier and they're immersed in it in, in school. Right. Yeah, that that uh, research has clearly shown that when you're younger, you can you have that flexibility of mind to to, to learn it, to absorb it, you know, kids right. are sponges. And I love that. All right. So let's, uh, let's finish up with a, a, a quick conversation. They had a serial ceremonial groundbreaking for the um, emergency room in East Hampton this uh, past week, Beth, that emergency room is, is really going to um, make a difference and, and save some lives out, out in East Hampton. Right. Absolutely. Um, if you've ever uh, been stuck in traffic on Montauk Highway, yeah. stuck in and traffic. Who hasn't? Everybody has. With the lights and sirens going and nobody's moving. Um, getting from Montauk to Southampton Hospital is insane. And at, or I'm against it, or even East Hampton. Um, and I mean, and one of the big things that I think isn't isn't highlighted enough is that like a lot of these EMTs are volunteers who are like taking, they're taking time off from work to go and right. a call and to have to spend two or more hours in traffic when you're volunteering um, is not feasible. Um, and, uh, and, you know, life-saving care, the sooner you get to an ER, the, the better off you're, you're going to be. So, um, Absolutely. I mean, they the finally, Oh, Sorry, go ahead. I was gonna say, did they did they um, solve the traffic question? Because I think they did a traffic study, right? But that might have not been. Some of the planners thought they wanted something more detailed. If I'm remembering correctly, yeah, I, I I think there were some concerns, but they they stuck with the original plan, and I think it had to do with um, um, with with ambulance access. But I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure. But I, I seem to remember we. We, you know, us writing that they were they were sticking with the original plan. Yeah. Um, so, so Chrissy, what what are they what are they what are they going to build there? What's what's this emergency room gonna gonna look like? Sure. So um, it's proposed as a twenty two thousand square foot annex um, that the you know Stony Brook Southampton is. Um, Stony Brook Medicine is the hub. Southampton right. Hospital is obviously part of Stony Brook. And there, this would be a $38 million project. Um, they're going to break ground on it this summer. Um, they're going to hope to finish it, open it up in late 2023. Um, and it's really, you know, they, they've gotten a lot of donor support. So they really um, acknowledge the folks this week who have been stepping up to help. Right. Because it's hard for, you know, a, a state a state run hospital system or maybe like town contribution. It's got to be a public private partnership. Right. Stuff in the, in the middle of the pandemic. And it was gratifying to see that even through the pandemic, they pushed forward with this. And um, and, it, and it's fine. They've been talking about it for years. I'm, I'm glad to see it's finally going to come to uh, to fruition. We are out of time. That is another edition of Behind the Headlines on WLIW 88.3969. I want to thank my guests this week, Alec Lewis from Riverhead Local, Chrissy Sampson from the East Hampton Star, and Beth Young from East End Beacon. Thank you, guys. It was a terrific show. <laughs>